Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Soshing with Suntwe. If you've never been here before, this is a podcast slash live broadcast where we explore ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Most of the people so far that have been on the show have been people that I've met through my uh, various adventures and travels and uh, different working experiences that I've had over the years. And uh, some of them are people I haven't met but I've associated with through um, online various things and, uh, you know, just cross paths somewhere along the line. Um, today, we are welcoming Jesse McDonald. But if you just give us a minute, whilst you're here, if you're watching already, please drop your uh, name and drop a comment and tell us where you're watching from. I'm just going to try and start sharing this a little bit around so that we can get some more viewers and give it a chance to populate a little bit. Um, but yeah, let us know where you're from. Tell us what you what um, where you are, and uh, let's get this conversation started. Remember, at any time during this uh, this broadcast, if you've got anything to say or contribute or want to get involved, please feel free to jump in on the conversation and uh, yeah, get involved with the program because that's what it's all about. Anyway, let's get this going. Let's share to our group. If you haven't already, join the Soshing with Suntwe group. That way, you don't lose, uh, don't miss out on any of the any of the broadcasts. Um, but if you, why am I failing to do this now? And if you um, if you uh, haven't been here before, share with your friends. Let everybody know. And um, yeah, let's get this going. Let me just get this shared done quickly. Group. Social software. Post. And share. Right post. Right. So in theory, that's all done. And I just want to get it up on my other screen so I can see your comments nicely. Um, there we are. Let's get it up and going. And without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you Jesse McDonald. Here he comes. Jesse, how's it going, mate? Doing well, sir. You're looking good yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm digging the hair, mate. The long time, the last time we saw each other, I had a mohawk and you had a, a decent, like, short back and sides. And now we're both rocking the COVID, the COVID cut. It should be like the 2020 cut of the year, the COVID cut. That's what I've been calling it myself, the COVID cut. I, I don't think I've got a trend since since January. And then, uh, I, I don't know, you know, it just seems to be. It seems to be how I feel right now. I'm just letting things go. Yeah, not trying to control things yeah. too much. And it's uh, a good way to be. you know, I thought I'd give it one hurrah before I before I go completely bald. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta fight back those years, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I, yeah, yeah, it's good to see you. So you're in um, you're doing this from London, I imagine, right? Well, not London as such, but just south of London in uh, Mid uh, Midhurst, West Sussex. So we're in the middle of the forest here. Um, I'm actually in my office at work. Everyone else has gone home, but I've stayed at work to uh, have a nice clean background and a quiet environment to be able to do this nicely. Nice. And, um, yeah. So last time I saw you was when? In, in 2017? I believe so, yeah. It was, it was um, 
Harare, right? In Zimbabwe. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. But yeah. um, I see we've got some viewers here. We've got Holly Blunt, Sharon McMillan, Christine Robinson, uh, Deborah Taylor, Bruce Mashlangu. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> nice to have you. So your background is fascinating, mate. Like... For someone to say they've had an interesting and eclectic background is one thing, but your background is just crazy. Where, where were you actually born? I was born in the Philippines. In the Philippines, okay. Yeah, 1978. When? 1978. <laughs> 1938, I was going to say. <laughs> You've aged well. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, <laughs> thank you. No, 1978, Philippines, Quezon um, City, which is technically just a suburb of Manila. So right there in the capital, my parents were uh, doing missionary work there at the time, yeah. All right, and how long were you in the Philippines for? You know, not too, not too long. I don't remember too much as an infant in the Philippines. I believe I left when I was about one, a little afterwards perhaps, and then we moved back to the US and, um, and that's when the rest of our family started to come into the picture. My little sister was born in Arkansas, but then we were, then we moved immediately back to Asia. So I spent my entire childhood in Asia mostly. Oh wow! Because so, yeah. you you then grew up in Japan, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, all over Japan. So tell us a little bit about that. We've got just before you do though, we've got Christine Robinson says hi, Paul and Jesse. Hi, Christine. Hello, Christine. Thank you for coming. Um. Tell us a little bit about that early childhood. What was in the, in Japan and how you got there and what you, how you found it. Do you speak Japanese? Yeah, I do. Skoshi nihongo shaberimasu. That means I speak a little bit of Japanese. Um, ultimately, I, just to give you a little backstory of how we, as a family, moved to Japan. My parents were part of the hippie movement, and um, they decided at the time, seeing it was the best thing to do was to get involved with a religious organization, uh, kind of a revolutionary Christian religious commune type group. And, uh, and they sent out their uh, emissaries to four corners of the earth. And my parents decided that Asia was someplace that they wanted to go and reside and, and uh, continue their mission work. So that's, that's initially how I was born in the Philippines. My parents met there in the Philippines, I believe. And then uh, they loved Asia so much that after returning to the U.S., they decided to go back and, and make Japan their mission field. And I ended up being in Japan for between the ages of, I guess, three, a little bit before three, maybe two, two and a half, three, until uh, 15 years old. Oh, wow. So good a significant chunk of your, uh, your developing years, really, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. And, and I did just stay in one place in Japan. I was moving rather consistently. My family was very nomadic in that sense. And so for education purposes, were you homeschooled? For the most part, yeah. Really? Part, I was homeschooled by my mother, who did an okay. excellent job. Uh, <laughs> anything that uh, I lack in as far as intellect and <laughs> academia is concerned, I don't blame them at all. It's my own learning disabilities. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, she taught me how to read, and um, so no real formal education as a child. I, I do remember at certain points in the various communes that I was in, we did have a more of a formal schooling environment with other peers my own age, 
Um, but yeah, it was still still sort of a homeschooled um, Christian curriculum. Yeah. Was it was it like ACE? I'm sorry. There's a there's a Christian ACE? thing called Accelerated Christian Education, ACE. That's quite popular in Zimbabwe. Oh, I have I have not heard of that, but um, it might be similar. But for everyone watching, um, here's proof that you can be homeschooled and not turn out to be a weirdo. <laughs> well, don't speak too soon. <laughs> Off camera, I'm rather weird. <laughs> You're weird in a good way, not weird creepy, so that's cool. Um, Try not. So you, you've got a significant number of siblings, don't you? I do. I'm the eldest of 10. 10? Yes. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's also something more interesting about your, your siblings, isn't there? So, like, how, tell us about your, your siblings, what sort of age gaps there are. And... Well, we're all pretty pretty close together, only separated by years. So my, my parents were very active at the time. And uh, we didn't grow up watching television, so not a whole lot else to do other than <laughs> follow God's commandments and procreate. And uh, that's, a, that's essentially what they wanted to do was to have more children who could assist them in their mission work internationally. And uh, so there's myself, and, uh, and then I have a sister, brother, brother, another sister, another sister, three brothers, another sister, and then another brother. So we're all fairly separated by uh, about a year, year and a half at most. So yeah, the youngest mm -hmm. and myself were separated by about 17 years. Wow, yeah. mm -hmm. that's incredible. And interestingly enough, though, I don't know um, if this ties in at all, but uh, myself and my, my youngest sibling, we've kind of followed similar paths, I guess, in our, in our careers and our artistic pursuits. So oh, really? yeah, I get along with every single one of my siblings very well. We all communicate frequently. We're all on a WhatsApp chat group together and, and uh, yeah, we, we love each other. Everybody's spread out still uh, across the planet for the most part. I've got a sister in Japan. I've got a sister in California. I've got brothers and sisters uh, in Texas and Florida and Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina right now. So I've got family here as well. That's yeah. amazing. Big so, now, so now you 15 years old was when you left Japan. Where did you go from there? So when I was 15, my, uh, my father was called to go to Russia. And it was just in the, it was the early 90s. It was right after communist Russia sort of collapsed. And uh, Yeltsin was the president at that time. And it was kind of losing control of that socialist dictatorship, if you will. And, um, and so my father saw that as an opportunity to, to go in and, and see where he could be of assistance and, and do his mission work. But uh, primarily what, what he focused on doing was, because uh, we were in Japan at the time, he collected medical supplies from a lot of the hospitals and medical facilities in and around Japan and would uh, buy a truck, a cooler freezer type truck, load all the medical equipment into the cooler truck. And I was the oldest uh, son, so I could help him with the, you know, the heavy lifting. And uh, we loaded all these supplies into the truck and put it on a ship 
and went between Japan into the uh, the harbor of Vladivostok, which is on the east coast of Russia, and then went up and down the coast between Vladivostok, Vladivostok and Kamchatka. If you have a map, you can kind of get an idea where that's all laid out. But uh, he'd find hospitals and orphanages that were in um, short supply of some of these medical pieces of equipment, and he would donate these this, this equipment to the hospitals and, um, and facilities there. And so that's what I got to assist him with initially one on my first trip to Russia. And yeah, I, I, fell lot, I fell in love with Russia too. I mean, what a, what a beautiful country. Well, that's amazing. So you actually did get quite involved in the actual mission work as a youngster then. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was the, the foundation work for anything that we did was of course to, to spread, spread the word of Christianity. And, um, and we did other projects as well along, you know, along that path. So a lot of it had to do with humanitarian aid. We, we had a humanitarian aid visa project with the local authorities there that allowed us access into these regions of Russia that were, were otherwise um, off limits to foreign tourists. So I remember my first visa for Russia was like this, a visa that typically foreigners would never be able to, to uh, have in their passports, but I could go anywhere I wanted to within within the Russian country. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, we've got a couple of comments here that I want to, to bring in. Uh, Togoloshi Zim says, greetings, you all watched loving that Zim episode of The Amazing Race. I would be interested uh, to know which episode you watched because there were two seasons that came through Zimbabwe. JC and I worked on the second one and I worked on the first one with uh, some other guys before. So I'd be interested to know which one are you talking about, the one that was in Emiri or the one that was uh, in Big Fault. Um, then we've got Barand. Barand's a great guy. Barand is going to be our guest on the 26th. He's uh, an incredible base jumper and a uh, really inspirational individual as well and a good mate of mine. Hi, Jesse. How many languages do you speak in total? Hi, Barand. Um you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not fluent. Uh, I'm not as fluent as I'd like to be in, uh, in Japanese, although I think Japanese would be the next language after English that I'm at least uh, fluent enough in. And uh, a little bit of Russian. And currently, I'm trying to uh, learn Spanish. So, yeah, we'll see how I go with that. <laughs> that's cool. That's, that's more languages than me. I'm, I'm ashamed at the fact that I only speak one language. Absolutely shameful. Um, but yeah, well, it's, it's, it's never too late. late to pick up a new skill, man. I, I found this fantastic website too. I, uh, a year ago, I, I decided like Spanish, I have to learn Spanish. It's the second most spoken language on the North American and North and South American continents. So I, I, uh, I found this program, I, I talk, I, I talk I or I talk he, I think, and you can yeah, just dial up people like we're doing right now on these, these types of platforms and have conversations and it's a free platform. So you kind of exchange this language education program. I'll, I'll assist somebody in their, their English conversational skills and they'll assist me in my Spanish conversational skills. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fantastic platform if anybody's looking to try it out. Excellent. So Togolosh Zim said he definitely watched the Big Falls episode, but probably both. 
Um, going back a bit, we've got Christine Robinson saying, thanks to your mother, Jesse, we're important people in our children's lives. Absolutely. You can't, moms are everything. And uh, moms are everything to their boys, I think. Yes. Uh, she was saying, my family love the amazing race. So are you still involved in the amazing race? If so, is it due to, is it due to airing time soon? Yeah, so the, the amazing race, uh, I've had the privilege to be a part of that, that, um, that family now as a production for since 2004, I believe. Yeah, I first got involved. And um, Paul, I, I believe we did work in Victoria Falls together on season 27. Season 27. Yeah, season 27. We first met at Vic Falls. We did that tree um, uh, Jumar event on that little island in the middle of the river. Did we actually meet there? Yeah, that was where I first met you, on that island. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Eat some more lion's mane mushroom. That might help with the memory and cognition. <laughs> no, don't worry, mate. Um, but yeah, we first met in Big Falls, and that's I think we, we made a connection there because I, I was into rock climbing and, and rope access skills. You were into um, kayaking, river river tours, and, and rope access as well. So we kind of hit it off and had those uh, had those moments in the beginning. And then the second time was season 30. That's when we did the Emiri episode together. And that that's was, great. that's right. That's Initially we had scouted that location. We can't remember the name of the rock, but it was this fantastic rock face in the middle of the, um, the Emiri reserve there. And we were going to repel, which ended up being uh, canceled from the episode. But, but we had, I could have you and I testing that out. Yeah, it was Castle Rock, eh? Castle Rock, that was it. That was yeah. it. We could hear the lion and the uh, the Suntwe. Is that is that hyena? Okay, we could yeah. hear the lion and the hyena in the distance having their little roar sesh together. I remember that distinctly, going off the rock and hearing the lion roar in the background was quite surreal. But in that case, in that case, the Suntwe was sushing with the lion, eh? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So Soshing, I, yeah, um, you were telling me this earlier because I was, I was saying, I was calling it Soshing. My apologies, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, no worries. You this, is actually something, yeah. this is actually something that needs to be clarified, I think, because a lot of people who are not from Zimbabwe won't know the slang, but in Zimbabwe, we say Soshing as a slang word for socializing. So if somebody is saying to you, what did you do on the weekend? You'll often say, oh, I just, I was just hanging out Soshing with uh, Jesse and some mates meaning you're just socializing and talking, shooting shit, you know, talking crap. Um, so having a bit of a social is having a bit of a social. Um, so that's how I named this, uh, this show, Soshing with Suntwe, because it's just supposed to be a, a nice laid back conversation between two, uh, two people that uh, have common interests, really. I like it. Soshing yeah. Suntwe, I think that's, uh, that's the only Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean word I, I know at present. So, yeah, so the, the thing with with meeting you on that first amazing race was I was working under someone else directly. And Darren I think you were, and you were um, producing a, a completely different aspect of the a different challenge or something. Right. And you might have visited my island to have a look at what we had done, but we didn't spend much time together at all. Whereas, obviously, as you know, in Emiri, we worked hand in hand on the scouting, on the on the on every aspect of it. Yeah, what a fantastic experience. And just to follow up and answer that, uh, was it 
Takoloshi Zen? The question. Uh, and the Amazing Race. It will air soon. I think the next season that's uh, to be aired is season 32. And that is, I believe, to be aired in September. And I don't, I know it airs in CBS in the US, and you might be able to access it via some streaming platform, but you're gonna have to do that research there. Um, we did start filming a season 33 of Race, but due to the, uh, the COVID spread earlier this year, we had to shut down the production temporarily. So that's, uh, that's put that on hold for the moment, but we do have another season that's coming up and uh, that's bound to be a good time. So, stay okay. tuned. So, this is a good time to teach you another Zimbabwean slash Southern African word, and that's togoloshi. 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 And a togoloshi in a, in a Southern African culture is basically a goblin. <laughs> okay. And it's a, it's a little goblin, and the theory is you buy a root from a witch doctor, like this uh, magical root, and you plant it in a pot. And you grow it, and it turns into this little tokoloshi, who's like a little scary demon character. And if you own a tokoloshi, he does your bidding, and he can go and steal money from people for you, and he can conjure things and do terrible things. But there's a, a, like a really bad price to pay for having the tokoloshi. Like there's, there's all sorts of legends, like you have to let him sleep with your sister or your wife or whatever as payment for all these things. And, and so it's like selling your soul to the devil, really, to have a tokoloshi. Right. A lot of misfortune and uh, stuff gets blamed on this little goblin guy in uh, in Zimbabwe. And you often have headlines in the news like uh, Togoloshi molests all the teachers of a school or something like that. <laughs> 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 it's quite it's quite entertaining. Let's uh, let's hope he doesn't bring me any bad luck for butchering that pronunciation earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, is that is that a Zimbabwean word or? Um, I think Togoloshi sounds. It, it's not Japanese, but there that's very similar to Japanese words, and I can't think of uh, anything specifically at the moment. But tokoloshi is it's very phonetic, you know. Yeah, sounds very. I, mean, I think it's based in Zulu slash Ndebele, but it's pretty much regional through Southern Africa. It's tokoloshi. Yeah, and some people say tokoloshi, some people say tokoloshi, some people say tokolosh. It just depends on what area you're in and who's saying it. Um, Christine Robinson says, Paul, don't you speak some African languages? I, I'm going to say I don't, because otherwise people will start testing me. Um, but I can I can understand most Ndebele. I'm pretty crap at Shona, but I did take Shona lessons when I, um, when I could. And... Um, I can greet you in Tonga as well. So, uh, Suntwe is actually a Tonga word. It's not uh, Ndebele Oshana. It's a Tonga word from the Zambezi that means hyena. In Ndebele, it's uh, Mpisi, and in Shona, it's, uh, I just can't say it properly, but it's like Bere or Mbere or something like that. Someone in the audience is going to clarify, probably Vusa, because he's already said that Togoloshi is an Nguni word. So, there we go. Can you give us, uh, uh, can you give us some history on Nguni? Like, I'm going to butcher it. So, but I think uh, Ndebele and Nguni sort of come from the same, uh, like, base. And is Nguni not like the OG Ndebele? You, you tell me, you'll know that's not me. Right. So, anyway, whilst we're waiting for the answers for that, tell me more, uh, Jesse, about 
after Russia then. So uh, what I want to know is like, what brought you from this missionary type background into the TV industry, the television industry? How did, what, what, like when you were growing up as this uh, missionary child, what were your ambitions? What were you thinking? What was your mindset? Were, were you like thinking you the whole time I'm going to grow up and, and do good in the world and be a missionary? Or were you like, screw this, I'm out, I need to go and be a rebel? Or like what type of person were you at that stage? Yeah, that's um, it's a good question. I, I, I do remember distinctly as a, as a youngster, probably around the age of, yeah, between the ages of 10 and, and 15, knowing that my mission because of what my parents had educated how my parents had educated me and what my father specifically was encouraging me to become was a was a minister so i was trained in um in that particular ministry as as a as a christian minister and that was my background i have my only technical degree is in eschatology <laughs> which is uh degree in the study of the biblical uh, apocalyptic end of days. So that's uh, that's an area of studies that I'm somewhat well-versed in, although I haven't really researched that particular field in quite some time. That's amazing. But I, but I have read uh, the book of Revelations in the Bible um, over a dozen times for sure. So I know that fairly well. But so that as a, as a young teen, um, I wanted to be a minister. I know I knew that I liked to travel uh, exploring uh, new places, meeting new people. Of course, anybody who gets an opportunity to do that becomes rather addicted to it real quick. But um, I was I was really into music and playing the guitar at that age as well. So kind of a part of me wanted to pursue that a little bit and get into some form of the entertainment industry. I thought uh, Hollywood at the time was where things were happening in both film and in music. And so I didn't know anything about American culture other than from what I had seen on in movies. And we had a rather limited selection of, you know, American Hollywood movies that we had access to in Japan and Russia, you know, back in the late eighties or early eighties rather and early nineties. Yeah. But, um, and then somehow, after you know doing some travels in Russia, leaving Russia, going back to Japan, um, I got uh, deported from Japan. Believe it or not, <laughs> not for anything, not for anything that I did illegally in Japan. I didn't break any laws, <laughs> but um, it was just an unfortunate situation that involved a visa that expired, and I took a trip to Korea, and I came back, and I didn't have a proper visa and so the good people at the immigrations put me back on the boat and said you're no longer welcome here <laughs> you have to go from whence you came and i said well i've technically been here my entire youth and uh they said well tough man <laughs> figure it out and uh and yeah i went back on the boat to korea my grandparents were in hawaii i flew to hawaii spent some time with them got a little bit of island fever there and, and somehow in the back of my head i was still thinking you know maybe since this christian ministry thing didn't isn't really looking likely at the moment maybe i can pursue the music or or uh at the time i was thinking i was doing a lot of performance pieces for these um 
for some of these community gatherings that we would have for our Christian missionary group. So I thought maybe acting was something I was being called to do. And uh, coming back to the US, my parents landed in South Carolina. And I didn't know anything about South Carolina, so I landed there too after Hawaii. And, uh, and immediately I knew South Carolina was not the scene for me. It was farming, you know, that, that type of community there, and then rather slow pace of, li of, of lifestyle. And I was kind of young and active, and I wanted to do something interesting and unique and kind of out there. And um, I didn't have any formal training or anything. I didn't know what to expect, but I somehow had managed to save up $1,000, got a plane ticket to Hollywood, found somebody's couch to sleep on for a little bit and, and uh, started, started getting into to acting and taking acting lessons and, and auditioning. And I wasn't very good. <laughs> I, I realized real, real quick that uh, it requires a lot of effort to be a good actor. I think for anybody who's listening, if you're interested in becoming an actor, there's a lot that I know now that I should have known then that would make me <laughs> probably a better actor. But uh, acting lessons, I mean, that's first of all, despite what your experience is, go find somebody who's been doing it or teaching it for years and years and, and get to understand that craft really well. And uh, that's something that I wasn't really exposed to. And so I kind of lost interest in that rather quickly. And I knew that I needed to make money I wasn't uh, wasn't earning any kind of an income at the at the time, so uh, I right away. I, but being exposed, being on these movie sets as a, as a background actor, uh, I started to observe the the inner workings of production. You know, the, the camera side of things, the lighting side of things, the the directing side of things, the assistant directing, and uh, I found out really quickly that I was being drawn to that. A little, a little bit more than I was to being in front of the camera, and uh, and so I had the I, I had the idea. There's this one position. It's a very it's the entry level position in any kind of film or television, and it's called a production assistant. So if you have no experience, you've never done anything in film, you're right out of film school, or maybe you've never gone to film school. I never went to film school. Um, the first job that you should do or could do is a production assistant. Basically, and so that that entails any any of the uh, entry level obligations of somebody in production. So, script copying, right? That was what I primarily did in my first couple years as a production assistant. Was I would go and photocopy those those scripts and all the different um, uh, all the different editions of those scripts. I'd go out and purchase coffee for everybody in the office and make deliveries of the scripts to the agencies and the studios. And so I, I got to learn Los Angeles and Hollywood by driving around constantly every day, working 18 hour days as a production assistant, just doing any and every task that was requested of me. And that's what, uh, that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. You're a gopher. Yep. That's essentially what I did was just, Anything that uh, the coordinator, I think, is the, is the department that I reported to. So the production coordinator is the person that kind of connects all the moving parts and makes sure the producer has what they need, the director has what, what he or she needs. And uh, then, of course, the coordination between the studios and the actors and, 
and the agencies. And so, so I got to learn more and more about the industry from that perspective, which I really enjoyed at the time. I thought I, thought I was extremely lucky to have uh, got my first job in the industry, but it, but it did require me to make a, a considerable effort. Because <laughs> somebody with no experience Coming, coming into town and just saying, hey, I want to be a part of the movie industry doesn't really go over too well. You know, most people go to Hollywood or Los Angeles to get into film school. Obvious, obviously, if you have a film degree, you're much more likely to get, uh, get those connections or have those connections before you even decide to get into the industry. But so having no connections of my own, I, I basically decided to send my resume, which consisted of my name, my address, and hey, I'll do anything for whatever pay. <laughs> just, just interview me. And I, I sent out probably what was yeah you know, 500 resumes within a couple of weeks span of time. And one one Russian <laughs> one Russian production got back to me and said, Hey, we're uh, we're doing this movie about Russian gangsters. Can you come and help us out? I'm like, sure. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. But um, uh, someone, a podcast that I follow a lot, Impact Theory, and a guy that I really look up to a lot by the name of Tom Bilyeu, he always says, you know, people are always like, how do I break into, a, into an industry? How do I break into a job? And his first piece of advice is go to a place and tell them you will work for 90 days for free doing whatever they want you to do and then prove your value so that at the end of the 90 days, they don't want to lose you and will be prepared to pay you for staying. I think so that's, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, if you can take those ninety days and donate them to that business and show that show your worth and prove your value, mm -hmm. you know doors open. Yeah. For you. Just to address some of the comments, the reason I read the comments out is because this goes onto a podcast tomorrow, and they won't be able to see what's written there. So we've got from Brighton. Uh, Brighton's a good mate of mine from Vic Falls. Um, he's going to be a guest on the show as well. Brighton's got his own podcast and, a, and quite an interesting blog. If you want Brighton, drop your links to your podcast and your blog in the comments so that other people can take a, take a look. Um, he said uh, the Nguni languages are a group of Bantu languages spoken in Southern Africa by the Nguni people. Nguni languages include uh, Tosa, Zulu, Ndevele, Swati, Shubi, Puti, Bata, Lala, Nshwangwini, uh, Southern Transvaal Ndebele and Sumayela Ndebele. The Appalachian Nguni, uh, Nguni derives from the Nguni cattle type. And he says, that's wiki, not me. Thank <laughs> 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 well, for doing the research for us. And then um, Vusa uh, adds to that. Uh, Nguni is the dialect spoken by the people of Southern Africa, the lot that were under King Chaka after he subdued that lot. So the crew that stayed and those that ran, which is Ndebele and Shanganese Zulus, Kosa are the Nguni people. Cool. And then uh, Christine Robinson was asking, what does Suntwe mean? And uh, Suntwe means hyena. And that's my nickname that was given to me on the Zambezi when I was kayaking every day there by the other raft guides and stuff. If you want to know more about that, Christine, you can check out on my website. I've got the Chronicles of Suntwe, and the very first installment of the Chronicles of Suntwe is about the birth of Suntwe, the introduction, is all about how I got that nickname and why and all the, all the details. I'll drop a link to that in the comments as well later, but otherwise you can easily find it on Google if you look under Paul Teasdale Chronicles of Suntwe. Um, 
Yeah, further to that, Christine was also saying she studied at the Bible Institute of South Africa for three years in 1983. <laughs> production assistant is a hyped up word for a runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we, uh, we use both those terms in, in Hollywood still. Um, at the time though, of course, I would only use production assistant. I, I was so, I was so hyped that I got this job as a production assistant. I thought I had literally made it because I, I had come from <laughs> relative obscurity and uh, just kind of landed in LA. And I thought, wow, I broke it into the, into the industry and I made myself name cards, production assistant. <laughs> and uh, I look back now and it's, uh, it's of course all in good fun and I've come a long ways, but um, it, yeah, that's essentially what it was is, a glorified runner. That's all I did. I didn't even have a car when I first started out. I told the production coordinator, I said, no, I don't have a car. Take the bus here. Um, but with my first paycheck, I will buy a car. And uh, yeah, they paid me peanuts. But with my first paycheck, that's, a, that's literally what I did. I went down to the auction and bid on this real crap Subaru and uh, got it for 500 bucks. And it Served me well for the first couple of years, or first year, I think, and then it just collapsed afterwards <laughs> from all the driving. So, in your in your early years as a production assistant, did you have any like major starstruck moments? Um, yeah, there were. I was, I got, I got a chance to meet a lot of uh, producers and agents, and and going to these agencies, you pass by a lot of the actors and actresses, I can say, um, although one, one actor that I came in even uh, without, without being in a production environment, I was taking martial arts at the time when I first moved to LA, I was taking a martial art called Wing Chun Kung Fu. And um, I was at this studio training with my Sifu and uh, a regular student for uh, with with my sifu uh head instructor there at the time was robert downey jr oh. and so yeah he would he would take private lessons with my instructor sifu Oram, and uh every once in a while so we didn't get to see him on a regular basis but when there was a grading session so every when you have to grade for your belts you have to come in and demonstrate your skills and spar with uh people of your equivalent rank and uh, so he'd come into the studio when he'd have to grade, and I was fortunate enough to be at that sash grade where he was, or a little bit, a little bit higher, I think, at the time. So he would have to spar me in order to uh, pass his pass his grading sessions. So I, I had some experience sparring with the uh, with the Iron Man <laughs> before. <laughs> That's amazing. Before he was the Iron Man. My my only encounter with a with a, an A grade celebrity was a very uh, embarrassing one in Las Vegas in two thousand and seven. I was twenty one or twenty two, I think. Yeah. And I I'd gone to Las Vegas to launch a, a natural cosmetic range, so I'd spending my days at this uh, natural products convention during the day, and then at night because I only had a small amount of time there, I um. I would uh, go onto the strip and try and see as many different things as I could and try and go and see a couple of shows and, you know, do as much as I could. And so I would be like 
head down, mission walking to most places. And I went to the Bellagio Hotel and I was walking through the casino there, head down, just missioning as fast as I can because I wanted to get to the next place or the next place. And I slammed straight into Cameron Diaz. Oh, nice. Yeah, like snack bang like this. I looked up, I saw this beautiful woman. I saw these, these uh, what I assume were bodyguards or part of the entourage. And they looked menacing, so I sort of skittled, I mean, sorry, skittled away, like, into the distance. And everybody was pointing and laughing at this idiot who had just walked into this person. And I looked again and realized it was Cameron Diaz. Yeah, I've heard, I have not met Cameron Diaz, but I've, I've heard many good things about her. I actually read something about her yesterday. She's not even in the movie acting industry any, any longer. She decided to oh. give it all up, yeah. She's, um... I think she's into winemaking now. Oh. You're going to have to look that up. I could be wrong, but I think that's one of the things she's doing. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, another real real quick, uh, Paul. I, I do remember this distinctly because one of my, my mother's favorite movie, again, um, speaking of my mother, was uh, this movie with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell called uh, Overboard. Have you ever watched Overboard? I the don't think the early it. ones. I think it was in 1980s movie right now there's a new remake of it but uh the early one the original with goldie hahn and kurt russell my mother's favorite movie i enjoyed it immensely as a as a youth myself it's just this great romp comedy and goldie hahn was this beautiful blonde bombshell in, in the movie who's the love interest of of the captain the the rough rugged captain anyways i've always had like kind of a boy crush on on goldie hahn growing up and and I told you earlier that I was a background actor in the, in the beginning of my career in Hollywood, right? And they just send me on sets in the middle of, you know, I, I have no idea what movies I'm going to, who the stars are, nothing. They don't give the background actors any information. We're essentially the equivalent of a runner <laughs> in the acting department, right? So the people in the background, anytime you see a movie and there's, they're your, your primary characters, you have everybody in the background who, you know, don't say anything. They just cross paths. Those are your background extras. And I was one of those guys for a little while. And uh, they sent me to set. And sure enough, it turned out to be a movie with Goldie Hawn and Susan Sarandon. And uh, I was lucky enough to be that. It was a bar scene. It was a dance scene. And it was it's called the Banger Sisters, I think. And um, so there was it was a club scene where both these ladies are really letting loose and having fun with the patrons inside the bar and the assistant director says okay we need a dance partner for goldie Hawn. uh you sir or young man <laughs> i was in my early 20s dance with goldie Hawn. so i had the director yell at me and uh you know like oh, okay sure i whatever you're talking i was so petrified man i was like this is one of my childhood idols i i'm going to be dancing with her now this is incredible but she was what a what a fine lady and um, yeah, great experience. Her and Susan Sarandon too. Very 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 fun to work with. They were great to all all involved in the project. But, yeah. So believe it or not, we've been doing this for forty five minutes already. Yeah. Um, so I just want to tell everybody thank you for coming. Who has who, who's been joining us? If you've got any questions that you want to address, please chuck them in the comments because we we try to keep it to an hour, but I doubt this is going to stay stick to an hour. We've got a lot to to still talk about. We might have to split this into another one and have you back another time, Jesse. But um, uh, yeah, 
So chuck your comments in there. Thanks for coming. Share with your friends. You know the drill. Um, yeah, so moving on from, from the extras and stuff, how quickly did you manage to progress through to becoming to, to where you went? Did, did you work predominantly on movies or did you go into reality TV quite quickly? How did you get into the site? How did you get from being a gopher to being a producer on something as uh, big as The Amazing Race? Yeah, so I think most people, when they're doing the running, they may be enjoying it for the first couple months. You know, it's obviously a great experience to learn the craft and to understand the industry and the inner workings. Um, but I doubt people with ambitions really want to remain there. And I've, I've always been very motivated and driven to do something, I don't know, do something bigger, something better, be involved in the creative process. I was always trying to get my foot in the door in that sense. So, so yeah, the, the next phases of transition were to become a coordinator or become a production manager. And I was, I was, meeting people and making impressions with people and working really hard to to show them that I was dedicated to this industry and that I wanted to move through the ranks and, and do something a little different, take on more responsibility, essentially. Um, I got a job at Big Brother season two as a production assistant. And uh, I, I made good connections with the people there. And, and Hollywood, as with any industry, really is about meeting people, introducing yourself, letting them know who you are, you know, being friendly, being cordial, just being polite, being respectful, and, and making those connections because a good connection goes a long way in, in any industry and no, no different in Hollywood. So I made a great connection with a, uh, with a gentleman, uh, an executive producer on, on Big Brother, and uh, he transitioned over to The Amazing Race, and he gave me a call one day. He said, listen, we got this opening in the research and development department. And I was like, that's creative. That's a lot better than driving my car and getting coffee for a bunch of people. Because, yeah, you'll be, I think your international experience may come in handy. And I was like, fantastic. Let's do this. And I went over and uh, that was back in 2003, I believe, initially. And uh, late 2003, early 2004. And... Um, and uh, yeah, it was the research development department's uh, uh, position opened up and I joined the team, it was another woman and myself, and essentially my job in that, in that department was to, uh, well, the executive producer, uh, Bertram Van Munster, and his wife, Elise Doganeri, were the co-creators of The Amazing Race. They would, yeah, <laughs> he's still at it too, and that's, that's one active man. And uh, yeah, so he, yeah, he would call me into his office um, with his wife and he'd say, hey, listen, I've got this idea. I want to go to this place in Europe and this place in Africa and this place in Europe. I'm sorry, in Asia and, and, and in South America. And I want you to find me things. So that was my job. I was like, I, I went online and called up tourism departments and just talked about their cultural activities. I'd, I'd look for games that they play, that kids would play, you know, things that typically as Americans we wouldn't be exposed to on a regular basis, you know, because we wanted to take these contestants and put them in these real uh, interesting environments and kind of put, take them outside their comfort zones. 
And so that was my job initially at The Amazing Race was just research. Like I'd, I'd come up with a list of ideas and show him and the other producers and he would cherry pick things that he liked or didn't like. Most of them he didn't like. I mean, <laughs> we'd narrow it down to a few that he did. And, um, and then they would go out in the field and scout these various events everywhere. And they develop their challenges based around uh, that research. And of course, Bertram had his genius that he would use to develop these fascinating ideas for challenges and games globally. And uh, and then I realized, you know, I, I don't want to be stuck in this office, <laughs> you know, sitting around typing away on Google and making phone calls is great, but I want to be out there with the rest of those people and learning about uh, learning about these different cultures and experiencing and exploring on my own. And, and that's kind of eventually how I got into that, you know, got into that path. So how what, was, uh, <laughs> what was that? Which is why I eventually met you in, in Zimbabwe. Yeah. So what I was supposed to do was to take, uh, to take uh, Bertram's wild ideas that had then been filtered through Jesse's mind and try and uh, execute the practicalities on the ground and help try and design the, the, the actual feasible way of executing these things in a safe and non-threatening and uh, pretty, you know, non-dangerous manner. So for instance, like when Jesse and I worked together, we had to look at uh, logistics of getting from A to B in the most difficult but safe way possible. We had to look at interesting areas of the country and how we could uh, create challenges out of that and uh, build rafts that, uh, contestants could paddle across a lake and make sure that they're not going to drown halfway and do all the water safety and all that sort of thing. So it was, it was great, uh, really entertaining stuff that, uh, that we got to do. Uh, a lot of the, uh, Jesse and I spent quite a lot of the time quite intimately huddled together on a motorbike riding around the bush with <laughs> rhinos and uh, rhinos, elephants and various other game. <laughs> a little bit of horseback riding too through the, through the lake. Yeah. Yeah. We did some horse riding, look at, uh, through Buffalo, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And elephant, yeah. Mm -hmm. Was yeah. it was it that buffalo that had escaped from uh, from the reserve? I think while we were there, there was a was an emergency. A lot of the, the rangers had to come into action real quick because some angry buffalo had charged through one of the one of the fences and let the other buffalo out. I do Something remember like that. And apparently this buffalo had killed something yeah she had a, she had a bit of a, a reputation this one. yeah but she killed another animal i don't know if she killed a buffalo or an elephant I mean, she killed other buffaloes yeah okay. no she, she thought she was an elephant that's this buffalo thought she was an elephant she would hang out with the elephants that's good. and uh right if i, I remember correctly right. no, no. the only buffalo that would hang out with the elephants and the other elephants kind of accepted her but then when she was with the buffalo she behaved as the alpha buffalo as an elephant and and did some naughty things. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what, a week, what a week that was, really, because, I mean, even on the scout side of things, before we actually did the production, you and I uh, taking, um, you know, trying to time the train from... Uh, yeah, time how long it would take to go by train from Harare Central to Marandera, yeah. and then trying to work out how much time it would take to catch um, what we call them in Zim ETs or combis mm -hmm. from Harare to Marandera to Emire, 
and uh, oh man, it was just uh, crazy times. And all the water sampling I had to do of the dams for Belazia. That's right. Yeah, you really just don't understand how much work goes into one hour of television, right? Well, it's basically it's forty-five minutes, really, with commercials. You know. <laughs> so. Yeah, forty-five minutes took us days. Yeah, the due diligence is very, very complex, especially when you're working on a on a network program of that uh, that magnitude. You know, you have to ensure that the safety is, and, and livelihood of the, the contestants is, is well managed, and we didn't want them to get ill. I mean, granted. People do get injured, but we wanted to make best efforts to avoid putting them in dangerous situations with, you know, with um, without us being fully aware of anything that could possibly go wrong. And I just know that I keep I keep getting the the, the thing because I know that I know that the whole idea is put them in challenging situations that aren't going to kill them. And I and people are like. They <laughs> kept coming to me saying, "We want to challenge them, but it has to be something they can actually achieve." <laughs> yeah. Why do you want to kill them the whole time? <laughs> no, and uh, you know, I kept I, coming up with like completely like over-the-top challenges for for these poor contestants. Right, I know that's what we relied heavily on you for because you were that expert in your field of uh, extreme sports and activities. So, uh, you know, that's, that's how these ideas get passed down. They, you know, people back in Hollywood and Los Angeles come up with crazy ideas like, why don't we do this and throw them over this rock? And then I take that idea. I'm like, yeah, that's sure. Great. Sounds awesome. <laughs> and then I'll talk to you. It's like, we want to do this. And you'd say, well, here are the, here are the details. And these are the ladders. Remember that that uh, bamboo or wooden ladder that we had to climb up the rock. I mean, that itself was a safety hazard because you and I could technically climb it, but once we start putting camera operators or random contestants up there, then the, if the rung's missing and somebody has a slip and falls to their, God forbid, death, you know, it's like we don't want that on our heads for sure. Nor does the network and nor does anyone else. And yeah. So, we are now uh, sort of needing to wrap soon, but before we go, I'd just like to chat to you about your newest project, the Race to the Center of the Earth. Can you tell us what it is, how that's what what uh, uh, how it came about, and yeah, give us the information. We don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a really exciting project. I tried to get a a trailer that I could share with you guys today. Unfortunately, it has not been released by Nat Geo yet. So I'm not at liberty to to share it at the moment. However, when it does become available, I will post it. Um, but it's called Race to the Center of the Earth. It's a it's a show for National Geographic. They wanted to do something. They wanted to do a competition series, like a uh, an adventurous travel related competition series with a prize of a million dollars. And so uh, somebody at Nat Geo came up with this concept of having teams. Start at four corners of the planet. We picked uh, we picked South America, uh, Russia, Asia, and North America as these starting locations. And essentially, what these they're teams of three people, all with kind of some training in outdoor outdoorsmanship, or they're they're not your typical 
amazing race contestants. These are kind of a bit more seasoned professionals. And uh, we put them in extreme environments and basically told them, yep, you have a million dollars somewhere in the Pacific Ocean on a buoy and you gotta, you gotta make, you gotta get there before anybody else does. That's essentially what the concept is. And so that's, uh, I was uh, privileged to be uh, uh, selected to be uh, an expedition leader for the production side of things for one of these regions. And uh, I won't tell you which one yet, but uh, yeah, so I got to run the course. Again, it's kind of like what we do on The Amazing Race, but this one was very, more and more hardcore in the sense where there's a lot of running, there's a lot of hiking, cycling, boating, swimming, climbing, kayaking, rafting, you name it. There's just every kind of sport or transportation or travel related activity you can think of, we kind of incorporated into this production. So it's, it's unlike anything I've ever been, been a part of, but it was uh, quite a, quite a, uh, a, an amazing opportunity and experience. And I think it's going to be really exciting to watch. When is that uh, airing? So I found out yesterday with this COVID thing, all the scheduling for the networks have been kind of mixed up and uh, thrown off a little bit. It was going to air in September. It's been pushed back to December. But uh, again, once I get an exact date, I think it's December 9th, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, year, it's on Disney. Uh, Nat Geo is a part of Disney Plus now, that whole streaming platform. So if you have Disney Plus, you can get the Nat Geo. Otherwise, I think you have to look into your other streaming platforms. But that one's going to be fun. High-octane adventure, global cultural experience, and then, of course, everybody just converging onto that central location. It's a lot of work. Fortunately, I don't. no one died. <laughs> we're, we're all safe and sound. Yeah. You and I, we gotta we gotta talk about some of some of those projects that uh, you and I've been developing recently. A little more, maybe a little later. Yeah. So I think we definitely need to have you back on this. Um, there's uh, there's just way too much for us to talk about that we can't fit this all into one hour. So um, I'm gonna wrap it in a minute. Don't go away. Stay in the in the little box at the bottom while I wrap everything up, and we'll chat more later. But uh, for everyone else. Jesse is going to be the big man producing the television show that I'm trying to uh, one day get off the ground at some point, um, as soon as I can get financing together and get the project uh, moving forward. This is my main man right here. And um, yeah, but uh, Jesse, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. This hour went way too quickly and it's yeah. been so great to catch up with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody, for watching again uh, every Wednesday, same time, same place. Uh, if you haven't already joined the group, join the group. There'll be extra content in that group. Uh, Jesse's in the group. You can even throw a, a post in there. And if you want to ask him any specific questions, I'm sure he'll be happy to answer them. And um, yeah, we'll catch you next time on Soshing with Sunfue. Thanks, Paul. You be well. <laughs> yeah, you Ciao. too, brother. Cheers.